This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. Our guests this week are filmmakers Justin Falk and Owen William Brennan. They've come out with a new movie called No Safe Spaces. The film is being released nationally. It has already been shown to enthusiastic audiences in select theaters around the country. You know, universities once upon a time were seen as bastions of free speech and diverse opinions, where scholars could fearlessly pursue any area they wanted without fear of retribution. Students could speak their minds, debate issues of the day or issues of the future or issues of philosophy. But now, what is happening in the universities is just the opposite. They're becoming closed to diverse opinions. They want to shut dissenting opinions down. So, what should we do about it? How bad is it? In this movie, we get chilling episodes of what is happening, but also some hopeful insights of people who are fighting back to preserve the First Amendment rights to free speech. The conversation with Justin and Owen is just ahead, but in the meantime, what's ahead? Well, next week we get a big one in Britain. They have a general election. Boy, this is going to hopefully resolve several issues. The biggest one is Brexit. Will Boris Johnson, the current prime minister, be able to retain a majority or achieve a majority and be able to get a Brexit deal through? Or will the Labour Party, headed by the virulently anti-American, anti-Semite Jeremy Corbyn, pull off an upset and win the election? This one is a big one. It affects not only Britain, but it affects Europe and our relations with Britain, which have been special for literally centuries. Of course, impeachment. That'll grind on, even though there have been no real sensational fines. It'll be going through the House. You'll hear a lot about it. They'll vote on it by the end of the year. And then it'll go to the Senate and go nowhere. But we'll have to put up with it. But a more relevant issue in terms of economic prosperity will be tariffs. On December 15th, tariffs are supposed to go on numerous Chinese products or be raised on numerous Chinese products. But negotiations are proceeding day by day. Good news, bad news. Will they reach a deal? Well, I think they will reach a deal. But in the meantime, you're going to have to put up with this roller coaster. And the stock market will react when the news is good. Arrows will turn green. The news looks pessimistic. They will turn red. It's in the interest of both countries to get this deal done, or at least phase one done. And when they do, we'll start to see more investment next year, which will be good for the economy and good for the stock market and your 401k. So root for a deal. The faster, the better. And the richer you'll be, at least in retirement. And now, my conversation with filmmakers Justin Falk and Owen William Brennan. Our two guests today, Justin Falk and Owen William Brennan, have directed and produced a most unusual and very alarming documentary called No Safe Spaces. They come to us via Skype. Justin and Owen, welcome. Thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. Hey, thank you so much for having us, Steve. The film concerns the attacks on free speech on college and university campuses. Not so long ago, institutions of higher education were bastions that protected new ideas, unpopular viewpoints. Free speech was seen as sacrosanct. In the 1950s and 60s, for example, people said 
Leftist professors should not be allowed on campus. They wanted to purge them. But the reaction was, no, free speech is absolutely sacred. Well, today we have the reverse. Rigid ideological conformity seems to be coming the norm. Anyone who dissents from the prevailing PC orthodoxy is subject to ostracism, severe criticism, intimidation, perhaps physical violence. The pressure is on to apologize or leave the campus. This is very, very, very different from what we had in the past. Several things make this must-watch documentary unique. One, it is riveting. It keeps you glued. Now, when you hear the word documentary, you think, oh, boring, it's good for me, but, you know, get out that caffeine. Not this one. The use of special effects, animation, and other things keep you riveted from beginning to end. Two, and we'll discuss this in a moment, the coupling of the stars. One is Dennis Prager, a religious scholar, popular radio show host, creator of Prager University, a man who is not often seen without a necktie. By contrast, Adam Carolla, comedian. Someone call him man cave comedian, animal house comedian. Rarely wears a tie. I don't think I've ever seen him in one. He's an atheist. Well, Prager is profoundly religious. Talk about an odd couple. Third, conservatives and liberals are featured in this film. While they differ on politics, they are united on the need for free speech, preserving diversity of opinion, fighting against shutting down of debate. As someone said, you need a physical workout, your brain needs a workout. So with that, let's start with your backgrounds. Justin, why don't you go first? Well, thanks, Steve. It's a pleasure to be on the show with you, and we appreciate your interest in the film. We feel it's an important film. I come from Hollywood. Well, I, I started working in Hollywood back in the early 2000s. I worked on the Matrix sequels. I worked on a number of other uh, films, motion pictures. So you learned early on, you've got to keep the audience interested. Right. I think uh, I honed my craft. I've always wanted to be a storyteller, and I, I honed my early early days with uh, these big motion pictures and and learning from some really great storytellers along the way. At a certain point, I wanted to go off and, and do my own thing, and that's when I linked up with Owen Brennan here, and we formed a company with our other business partner, Bob Perkins, our company, Madison McQueen. We do messaging for uh Groups and, and ideas that are on our side of things, uh, you know, we, we really wanted to get into the war of ideas. And this film is a extension of that uh, journey. Um, we've been we've been at it for a while, about seven years as a company, as a production team and no safe spaces. We started about two and a half years ago and we're finally got it wrapped up and ready for the, the people to see just in time when this uh, this um, issue is more important than ever. And. Uh Owen, what, what, how, how, how did you uh, get involved with this? <laughs> well, my fight in this has really been um, most of my life. I, was, I ran the conservative-slash-libertarian newspaper at the University of Oregon, um, where we actually had a First Amendment case go to the United States Supreme Court. Uh, we did investigations into uh, how student groups spent their money. We had our issues of our newspaper were dumped, so we had to figure out how to respond to that. Um, did they burn them as the... Uh... <laughs> Nazis did in Germany in the early 30s? 
Not quite, but uh, we had an expose on one of the student unions and uh, all the copy mysteriously disappeared from the newsstand. So instead of complaining, um, you know, we believe that uh, freedom of the press belongs to those who actually have a press. And since we rented a press pretty frequently, we uh, tripled our next press run and reprinted the issue. Um, and you couldn't go anywhere on campus without seeing that issue. Um, our editorial sort of guidance at that newspaper was, uh, I would say it's about 50% National Review and 50% National Lampoon. And we knew which 50% got students to pick up the newspaper. And I think that's sort of uh, a bit of the, the spirit in our film as well. Um, I've also been a speechwriter for Mayor Giuliani through the uh, Renaissance of New York and the attacks of 9-11. I worked at the fire department as a speechwriter for Commissioner Capetta. Um, I worked for Rex Tillerson as a speechwriter when he was at um, ExxonMobil. Um, and uh, I've also been a news producer at both Fox and MSNBC. Uh, and so in putting this film together, you know, I knew, I knew how to, you know, to create, you know, sort of, you know, content for a left audience, content for a right audience. And we really didn't want to do that in this film. We wanted to create a film that everybody could see, everybody could sit down and talk about. Um, we didn't want to really have a partisan film because this is a really bipartisan problem that's affecting our country. Well, certainly the guests you had on the uh, documentary certainly uh, complemented that uh, principle, and we'll get to some of the names in a moment. So how did the film come about? You said it uh, takes two, took two and a half years. That's not unusual seemingly in the film world. Uh, the gestation period seemed to be longer than elephants to get something uh, from idea to a screen. So how did this come about? Yeah, you know, uh, our co-producer, R.J. Moeller had been working with Dennis Prager for some time, and Dennis expressed a, a, a interest to do a movie about what young people think about important issues. Um, Dennis Prager, of course, is the founder of Prager University, and with Prager University, they focus on boiling down complex issues to five-minute videos, uh, mostly geared towards young people. And Dennis Prager has just been concerned for some time about what young people think about our country, um, is uh, America a force for good in the world? number of other issues. What do they think of free market capitalism? What do they think of socialism? These are all issues that Dennis Prager is concerned about what young people in America think because the cliche is true. Young people are the future. And this film was born out of a desire to tell a story about what young people think. Now, of course, when once we got started, things really started to take off and really blow up in terms of what was happening with free speech and free speech on campuses. And so that really informed our story and focused us as we were uh, beginning this story. Uh, the timing was interesting, uh, to say the least, as we started to tell this story. And we saw incident after incident taking place on college campuses around the country. But we also saw this expanding off the campus and into social media, into the media at large, and even just at your place of work. If, if people were saying things that weren't, that didn't fit the dogma of those around them, then they were ostracized, they were shut down, and many times they would lose their job or be, um, you know, the term canceled. Uh, canceled culture was, was starting to take over around the time that we began our movie. So we really decided to focus on that. And, and here we are today uh, uh, with a film that I think is, is more important than ever, than even when we began the film. And by the way, just, just for full disclosure, I've done a couple of uh, those five-minute pieces for Prager University, and it's amazing the audience they have. I think they've had over two billion views since Prager University began a few years ago. 
Yes. You know, I have two things to add to, to Justin's. One, I just remembered this um, as Justin was explaining sort of the origin of the film. The film was originally going to be called Generation Last, as in if if the, this generation, this Generation Z loses um, the understanding of the American idea, uh, that would quite possibly lead to the last generation of Americans, which was sort of an interesting premise, but it was like really it was sort of a wide ranging premise we had. We couldn't quite find a story thread. And then uh, we started seeing, you know, folks like Milo Yiannopoulos, who's really an agitator and kind of a performance artist being like, sh- you know, shut down at, at Berkeley. There's, you know, some of the footage is in our film about just the violence up there. Um, but then we saw, you know, folks like Ann Coulter and Ben Shapiro being protested violently. And then when we, we knew that we were entering a time that was something incredibly different when Charles Murray, Christina Hoff Summers, Heather McDonald uh, were being protested on college campuses. These are academics, they're intellectuals, they're bringing research and arguments to campuses that we should generally and genuinely be able to discuss. Um, and when, we, when we saw uh, academics being shouted down and violently attacked, that's really when uh, our film found a lot of focus. Now, a uh, technical thing. How are you uh, distributing this film? You had a limited release. You're doing a national release. Uh, it's quite something to be able to take a film like this, again, a documentary, and put it in uh, theaters and get popular audiences, popular reaction to it. Walk us through that. I'll let Justin get to the specifics, but I'll say you know, one of the things that we had to do was Hollywood wouldn't fund this film. Hollywood wouldn't make this film. Hollywood wouldn't distribute this film. So we had to go out and do all of this sort of on our own. Um, and you know, the toughest part was raising the money to, to make this film. Uh, you know, we're as Madison McQueen, as the filmmakers, we're first time filmmakers. Justin's worked in films before, but this is really our first baby. Um, and so once we had the film, it was much easier to get people interested in the film because it, I think the work stands on its own. So, Right, yeah. So getting a film distributed is, is not an easy task, uh, especially for one that, that only has – that doesn't have the support of anything in Hollywood. So we really had to self-fund this thing, and we also had to find a distributor that would work with us. Um, we had to provide – bring our own money to the table and use a company that can get us out in a, in, in a strategic way. We had to prove that there was interest for this film. So that's why we started with our limited release in Phoenix and then grew it from there. Um, yeah, it's uh, usually a lot of movies that go to the theater don't make money. Um, I, I believe the statistic is 8% of films that go to the theaters don't make money until they reach home entertainment. So, um, But at the same time, to get a movie out into theaters and have it do well at the box office really is a cultural marker. Uh, people pay attention to a film that has done well at the box office. And so we really wanted to make sure that as many people saw this film as possible. And so that's why we really decided that we we really had to have this film in theaters. Um, and Steve, you mentioned earlier about what type of film this is. This is not just your typical documentary. Right. We really do that uh, for people to shell out 15, 16 bucks and go to the theater. You had to give them a little bit more of a cinematic experience than something they could just watch on Netflix with talking heads and so on and so forth. So we really aimed to put a lot more into this film in terms of the animation you mentioned, in terms of the reenactments, in terms of just the cinema value of our film to tell a great story and motivate people to go out to the theater to watch, to, to make an event of it and go out on a Friday night or a Saturday night and watch our movie. Um, and so 
that's why our film, you know, took two and a half years to make is because it takes time to do these sort of things, especially when you have a busy guy like Dennis Prager and a busy guy like Adam Carolla, and you're trying to uh, get their schedules together and, and, and work out the production schedule. So we were really at it for a while. We really wanted to put as much into it as possible. And here we are with the finished product project and product. And I think that we're all pretty, pretty happy with how it turned out. And we, we really hope it raises a, a big alarm with the American public. Right. And you related earlier the importance of storytelling and getting points across. And in this uh, film, you start with stories uh, first from uh, Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla, both of them, uh, unusual stories. Uh, tell us first about uh, Prager and his experience as a young man in the Soviet Union. Dennis Prager is an interesting guy. You know, he's been lecturing from a young age. I believe he started lecturing at the age of 17. Um, he learned uh, several languages as a young man. He knows, I think, four or five languages fluently. One of the languages that he was fluent in is, well, a couple of the languages is, is Hebrew and also Russian. And so he was recruited by the Israeli government at one point when he was a young man, probably about 22, 23 years old, to go over to the Soviet Union under the guise that he was teaching Russian and or teaching Russian and, and, and Hebrew and and working with the community there. But what he was tasked to do by the Israeli government was to supply names of Jews living in the Soviet Union to be able to essentially get them out of the Soviet Union. Um, diplomatically, if Israel would, uh, requested a specific name of a person, the Soviet Union would often let that person leave and return to Israel. And so Dennis uh, essentially was hired by, you know, in a covert operation by the Israeli government to go find out who these Jews were living in the Soviet Union in order to get them out. And so uh, working as an agent for the Israeli government uh, is an interesting thing. And so he basically at the time was studying Marxism. He was just very interested in what the uh, Marxism was. And, and so that was why he was, that was one of the reasons he was over there. And as a result, he got a really good glimpse of, of what totalitarianism is and what Marxism is. And, and he basically saw you know, the, the, the effects of Marxism on, on a culture. In fact, when he came back to the United States, he would tell people about Marxism. People didn't believe him. They just didn't believe that it was, it was uh, the way he described it. And even when he was in Russia and telling people about America and about freedom, they didn't believe him either. They thought, you know, oh, freedom, that, that's just anarchy. So he really learned a, a lot as a young man, and I think it informed him uh, the rest of his life. And Adam Carolla certainly didn't begin, as the one person said about uh, George Bush on third base, didn't begin with a proverbial silver spoon in his mouth. Describe his story. Yeah, I don't think Adam was even on the team when he started. That's He was not, not even on first base, not even at bat. He probably wasn't on the team when he started. Uh, he grew up sort of lower middle class here in uh, Los Angeles. You know, he grew up, you know, wanting a basketball, wanting, you know, basically just wanting dinner. Um, you know, he didn't have like great aspirations. Um, his mom was on food stamps and, you know, he saw that at a very young age, how, um, you know, being on food stamps creates a life of de dependency, a cycle of dependency uh, that is very difficult to escape. And he set about himself to sort of, you know, not follow that path. He 
talks about in the film how he uh, started working as a laborer, basically, you know, not doing anything as an apprentice would, like laying bricks or pipe or anything like that. Um, he started, you know, cleaning up garbage and doing, you know, the work that a donkey could do, basically. Um, he, the story that didn't make the film was that he had a car and his, uh, his the guy who was running the, the construction site said, hey, if you buy a truck, I'll pay you, you know, Twenty dollars more a week, so he got rid of his car so he could get a truck, uh, and so he could make twenty dollars more a week. Um, you know, so he has a really sort of a um, he worked his way up. Yeah, you know, he's a real Horatio Alger kind of story, um, but he got his big break right calling into uh, to radio and just sort of making up characters uh, when Jimmy Kimmel uh, was a ta- was a radio host here in Los Angeles, and that led to them. Uh, boxing together and sort of led to him becoming a comedian. Boxing together? Adam Carolla was very involved in boxing. He's always been a great athlete. And at one point, Jimmy Kimmel had a uh, a show where he was going to be in a boxing match with somebody. I don't know who, but he needed somebody to train him how to box. And Adam at the time was calling into the show and he, he called in and be like, well, I can I can teach you, Jimmy. And so Jimmy's like, OK. And that's that's how they, their, their friendship formed was Adam taught him how to spar. So getting to the film itself, uh, what is happening on the campuses? Uh, share some of the stories, starting with uh, what happened at the University of Berkeley, where Ben Shapiro was coming to speak. And uh, they wanted to charge the organization bringing him on campus. Hundreds of thousands of dollars for security or tell them to get lost. Well, this is actually a trend we see across the country right now um, where campuses, in order to keep speakers they don't want to have on campus, forcing student uh, organizations to pay tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars in security fees, um, you know, because it's their fault for bringing a speaker to campus that people are rioting. Um, it's sort of a, a weird sense of logic for uh, the administrations to come to that. Um, but in this one particular, in- particular instance, it, uh, we followed Ben up to um, Berkeley. And actually, Justin was with the team, so I'll let him tell the story because he was sort of in the middle of the melee and uh, got a bunch of great footage up there. Sure. Yeah. And just to back up, Ben Shapiro was allowed to come to Berkeley a year before with no incident. He basically had one security guard with them. And so it's really about what happened about, you know, three, four years ago is when this stuff really started to to heat up on campuses, starting with the Milo Yiannopoulos event that got shut down because of rioting, a lot of destruction. Uh, Later, Ann Coulter was set to come to campus and she got uh, shut down. And there were several lawsuits. Uh, ben Shapiro was set to come, and it was it was rocky getting him him on campus. Ultimately, they did allow Ben to come, and we were with Ben. Um, but as I mentioned, Ben Ben was there a year prior with no incident. So it's it's really less about the speakers themselves as it is the the, the climate and the and the culture of all this that that happened about three four years ago of, of speakers being disinvited and shut down. One of the most chilling. Uh, episodes in your movie was at Evergreen State University in Washington State, where a left-of-center professor, a man named Brett Weinstein, did something that the student radicals didn't like. And tell, relate the story, what happened to him and hap- what happened to his wife. Brett Weinstein and Heather Hang were very popular 
professors on campus. They're both tenured. Students love them very much. Um, there was a tradition on Evergreen campus every year called the Day of Absence. And the Day of Absence was based on a play that basically people of color would not show up to the campus on that particular day, whatever the day was, to prove the point how important they are to the campus in general. And one year, they decided to flip the script. The, the, uh, the group of protesters decided to, to tell all Caucasians or people that were not of color to stay home instead. So they flipped the script or they, they thought they were flipping the script. They're basically telling people uh, not to show up on campus that day based on the color of their skin. Now, Brett and Heather, being liberals, they just thought this was nonsense. And they decided to show up to teach that day anyhow. And it caused a huge disturbance. There was massive protests, uh, rioting uh, about their, I guess, essentially not participating in the day of absence the way they were asked to. And it really became a national story. It was really amazing to watch this unfold. And it, it, was, it was violent. It was aggressive. And at one point, the campus security basically told Brett that they could not protect him anymore. He wasn't safe on campus as a professor. He was not on, safe on campus anymore. And so for us, this story was very important because we look at it as um, an example of what's going on, you know, an example of the whole. In fact, Brett um, likes to call it a case specimen for what's going on on campuses nationwide. And Brett, in our film, basically makes the point that what happened to him is not unique and it's coming everywhere. And so Evergreen is a very important example of how far this can go and how this is spreading into every part of academia and every part of culture. One of the uh, chilling parts of that episode was when Brett uh, Weinstein relates how he used to ride his bicycle to work every day. He was riding the bike. He saw a group of men. They had handhelds, and he realized they were planning to do something, and it wasn't to uh, pat him on the head. He fortunately knew other ways to get to work, off-beaten paths, so to speak, and quickly took it and avoided what would have been a violent confrontation. Then another one, if you could relate this, was the footage you had of a female student who uh, must have said something nice to uh, Heather or to uh, Brett, and uh, she was humiliated and forced you know, before a group of students, and you recorded this, recanting like the Cultural Revolution in China. R relate that. That, that was really, uh, really frightening. Well, during this whole process, the thing that really befuddled Brett and Heather was the fact that nobody really wanted to engage with them. None of these protesters wanted to get to the root of the matter or discuss these issues with them. They just wanted to yell and scream and, and shut things down. And every attempt that they made to talk to people was met with fierce resistance. And in one case, there was a young woman that just simply wanted to talk to them and understand their story. And she had not gotten the message that that was not okay to engage in a conversation with Brett. And so what happened was the protesters later took her and made an example of her by make, making her read a statement in public at a rally they were having. And this poor girl was not a very good public speaker. Um, she was not good at reading and, and uh, speaking in front of a group, and she was very, very nervous. And they effectively humiliated her in front of the group in front of the, the rest of the people that were at this rally to make the point that they had recaptured her. And as you mentioned, Steve, it's, it's a tactic not, not unlike what 
what, uh, what happens in communist China or even the Soviet Union to make a point to really show this will happen to you if you decide to, to stray off the reservation. So um, it was a very sad story. Um, we had, it was captured on film, and so it's, it was gripping and, and, and very telling that this kind of thing could happen on an American campus. Uh, very scary. On one of the most liberal, progressive campuses, um, and you know, this is really this is why the film is so important. Uh, you know, I think um, David Rubin makes the point that and D- D- David Rubin is a noted libertarian, right? Yes, uh, I think he's a lifelong Democrat, um, so maybe a, a centrist Democrat uh, who has a, a fairly popular podcast. But he makes the case that. You know, it doesn't matter what your politics are. Um, if you have a spark of individu- individuality, um, if you're a little bit different, if you're an oddball, if you have an opinion that doesn't quite fit in, they will come after you and destroy you. And you know that for him to say that might sound very glib, but then we spend about in the film, you know, twelve minutes in this incredibly compelling story about the Weinstein's and how the whole system turned against them, um, and how then they were sort of, you know. Uh, first attacked and then purged. Uh, it's really a, a as somebody who knew the whole story, I didn't even know the whole story when we you know finally got to the you know the Maoist um, element of the recapturing the dissenters. You also bring examples of uh, individual students. Uh, one, her name was Lindsay Shepard in Canada. Relate what happened to her. Well, Lindsay is another example of somebody who thought of themselves as being a on the left and very progressive. Uh, Lindsay was a teaching assistant at a school up in Canada, and she was teaching a class that uh, dealt with grammar. And one day in class, she decided to show a video to her class to show how grammar is important, but also grammar could be controversial. The, the video she decided to show was a, a clip from TV Ontario, which is the public television up there, and it showcased a professor of trans transgender studies debating Jordan Peterson, the professor from the University of Toronto. And so this was a very public debate. It was on TV. And she just decided to show this clip to her class. And she showed it to him in a very neutral fashion, just wanted to to relay the debate that was going on. She didn't take a stand one way or another. But the administration uh, received complaints from several students in her class that were offended by her showing this video. And so the administration came after her and really uh, wanted to punish her, try to figure out what to do with her. Uh, She secretly recorded the audio from that meeting with the administrators, which is really, really, really compelling audio. And it's it's very revealing the mindset of these administrators and how they were handling the situation and really how they were um, getting rid of all getting rid of all dissenting thought or not allowing even teachers to present material in a neutral fashion. Very, very scary. And again, very reminiscent of the sort of Maoist and totalitarian mindset of we are not here to discuss ideas. We are here to teach and re-educate people on what right thinking is and their what they view to be right thinking. And again, Lindsay, not a conservative and had a uh, was shut down because of just straying and and offering opinions that were were not popular. 
another compelling note from her that sort of is a tell about the progressives. Um, you know, she made the argument that one, this is a university, we should be able to talk about anything. And these are adults we're talking to. And the the administrators came back and they said, oh, but they're very young adults. They haven't, you know, learned how to think correctly yet. One of the compelling features of your film is the fact that you reached out to people who would be considered people of the left uh, to make the point about free speech. How did you get people like Cornell West or Van Jones to uh, participate? I think one of the, the things that's sort of important that I think about in my own life is to have sort of trans ideological relationships. You know, it's important for us to engage and have friends who are of the left. You know, I grew up with um, neighbors who were like raging hippies. Um, I, they probably won't listen to this, so that's safe for me to say here. But it made me realize, you know, for the rest of my life that, you know, even though somebody's a leftist, they may be somebody I, I could love and enjoy their, com their company. Um, so we really sort of went, as we started to hear people on the left saying certain things, we would call them, contact them, get their email, start, you know, saying, hey, you know, we're doing this film across country. Uh, when we're in your town, you know, would you be available for an interview? I think Robert George and Cornell West had signed a letter. Now, West, uh, West and, and uh, Robbie George are both uh, professors at Princeton. Robbie's seen as a conservative, Cornell West of, of the uh, left. But they agreed to debate each other civilly. Yes, and they actually they also they they generated this letter to colleagues uh, that ended up having you know hundreds if not thousands of signers about the um, the importance of having intellectual freedom on college campuses to question anything and to be you know free to ask you know uh, troubling questions. Um, you know, we had also heard Van Jones uh, gave a speech about the importance of free speech. So we tracked him down through CNN. Uh, we're able to get him on camera. And we even have uh, clips from President Obama in our film where he's talking to young people about the, the importance of, you know, uh, having differing points of view on college campuses. Obama tells this story about when he went off to college campus, all of a sudden he was surrounded by people who had ideas that weren't like his. Um, and he learned to talk to people as opposed to uh, just, you know, silencing them. Just to follow up on that, in anticipation of our film being out there, we really didn't want it to be discounted as a what we knew the attack would be, which would be called a piece of right-wing propaganda. We just felt like the ideas and the foundational issues that we were focusing on in this film were too important for this film to be disregarded because people viewed it as a right-wing thing. And so we just felt it was so important to not just have you know, our, our, our people like Dennis and Adam and people like Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson, but to add some balance to that uh, and, and have people like Van Jones and Cornell West to round out our, our our people that were making arguments in our film. That way, the film would be much more palatable to somebody who's a liberal. Um, they can watch a film like this and, and see President Obama making a very good point. And, and I'm no Obama fan. I don't think Owen is either. But he does make a, uh, some important points on free speech, as does Cornell West and Van Jones. And so we just felt it was important to have that kind of balance. Now, the film ends on somewhat of an optimistic note. Uh, relate about that. Uh, lawsuits that were filed that uh, against these some of these universities successfully that were trying to find ways to shut down free speech. Where, where do things stand today? Yeah, yes, we've sort of seen the tide turning on college campuses. Greg Lukianoff just gave us a, an update. Uh, he is in our film. He also runs an organization called The Fire. Uh, 
Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education, a real First Amendment defender out there. Um, and he said, you know, that the the tide really is turning. I mean, college campuses have been using this uh, security uh, trick for for years, but now there are a number of cases that have been high profile enough that have uh, sort of put uh, the pressure back on the college administrators to sort of take control of this problem as opposed to basically taxing uh, student groups off of campus or forcing them not to have speakers come to campus because they can't afford uh, the quote unquote security fees. I think the greatest pushback, though, isn't happening on college campuses. I think the greatest pushback is actually happening with the comedians. I think people like Dave Chappelle and Bill Burr and even Adam Carolla are really sounding the alarm on this issue. Um, and they are starting to push Seinfeld Seinfeld, uh, uh, raised the alarm years ago when he said he wouldn't go to, to, co uh, college campuses anymore. And a lot of, a lot of, uh, comedians feel the same way. I think Pete Davidson just basically said the same thing just recently. So I think comedians are the ones that are really starting to push back because of course, if they can't tell jokes, then they don't have a job. So they, uh, and these are not conservatives. These are people, a lot of them on the left. That are speaking out. And so I think, you know, people like to laugh. And when they hear that their comedians aren't allowed to tell jokes, I think that's going to influence people in a profound way to start to fight this thing. No matter where they are on the political political spectrum, I think people, when they see Dave Chappelle being met with resistance, are gonna be like, no, this has gone too far. This political correctness and this suppression of speech has to stop. So we do see the pendulum swinging a bit. And uh, that's reason, I think, to, to give give us hope. Well, the greatest enemy of tyranny is humor, uh, making fun of them. So uh, you may be right. The comedians are leading the charge. Who, who, who would have thunk it? That's right. And democracy dies when there's a lack of humor. And there's no comedy. Well, Justin and Owen, thank you so very much for sharing your time with us. And uh, good luck with the film, No Safe Spaces. Where, where can they go online to find out a theater near them? nosafespaces.com uh, has a button labeled theaters and you can click on that and find the theater nearest you. You can buy tickets there as well. Terrific. Well, thank you both very much and thank you for uh, what you've wrought. Great. Thank you very much, Steve. Thank you, Mr. Forbes. Really appreciate please, it. Please call me Steve. Don't make me feel so old. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate the time. <laughs> thank you. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with these two unique filmmakers and about the disturbing news they're bringing, but also the fact that people are fighting back for the basic liberties that have made this country unique and great. And now, my reads of the week. Two of them are from the City Journal. You can find them on city-journal.org. That's C-I-T-Y-journal.org. The first one is entitled, The CDC proves Trump right on vaping. There's been a lot of bad science about vaping. The additives used in marijuana vaping are very, very bad. That is where you're getting these lung diseases. That's where you're getting these deaths. But these additives are not used in what is called nicotine vaping, which is what most vaping is about. You shouldn't vape, you shouldn't smoke, but vaping is far, far safer, 95% safer than cigarettes, and that kind of vaping, you're not going to get these illnesses that are dominating the headline. The piece is written by John Tierney, that's T-I-E-R-N-E-Y, and again, can be found on city-journal.org. 
The next one from the City Journal is an optimistic one. It's entitled, If You Let Them, They Will Build. Oakland shows that all you have to do to expand the housing supply is tell developers they can put up new homes. Remove the unnecessary restrictions and regulations, and by golly, good things happen. The piece is written by Philip Sprinson. Let me spell that for you. S-P-R-I-N-C-I-N. That's S-P-R-I-N-C-I-N. And it can be found in cinejournal.org. The final read of the week comes from the Wall Street Journal, WSJ.com. This one is entitled, A Prescription in Poetry. Doctors at several major hospitals are experimenting with poems as a source of psychological relief and connection. This simply goes to show there's more to health and medicine than just taking pills or the operating table. And when you go to this piece, read a poem written by a patient, a moving one called Scared. It will make you grateful for the good health that you do enjoy. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.